This is MSCI Perspectives, bringing to light insights and analysis to help global investors tackle today's challenges. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is February 29th, 2024. On this leap day, we leap into the world of commercial real estate. Sorry, couldn't resist. Now, some of the financial press and even some investors have placed an outsized focus on the office sector, which, to put it mildly, did not have a good 2023. But as our guests point out, commercial real estate is much more than office. And even when it comes to the office sector, there can be big differences between different cities, between cities and their suburbs, and between different parts of the world. In other words, real estate seems to all still be about, say it with me now, location, location, location. So is the doom and gloom story we've been reading about simply overblown? Or is there something to it? Let's start with our first guest for today. Hi, everyone. It's Tom Leahy here. I'm head of European Real Assets Research at MSCI. So I think there's a, there's, there can be a tendency, I think, within the property industry to say, well, some of this is overblown. But actually, I think some of the concerns really are valid, but selectively. And I think that's the important point to make. There's always a tendency with real estate, which is, after all, a heterogeneous asset class to sort of talk about sectors and markets um, as though they are one homogenous group of, of assets, but they're obviously not. So there are challenges in the office sector. I think the challenges are particularly focused on the secondary and tertiary quality buildings. Um, and there are serious concerns over the viability of these assets going forward. You're seeing prices for secondary and tertiary properties in particular falling quite substantially. Buildings being traded for hundred plus million pounds less than they were bought for five years ago, for example, in some of the core markets in Europe. Uh, so why is that? Well, there's, the European market in particular is, is affected by several headwinds. You've got the cyclical correction, which is because of the rapid change in interest rates. But there's also the sort of structural headwinds, which are the shift to hybrid working and what that's going to do for office demand going forward. I think the consensus is that occupiers will want Slightly less space than they're in now, but that space has to work a lot harder than it used to. So you've got to be in well amenitized and well environmentally rated buildings as well. So that's the second headwind that's facing European offices in particular. There's a lot of concerns over the carbon footprint of the real estate industry. Uh, many major investors and investment managers and occupiers have pretty ambitious net carbon zero goals. And so they're shifting their preferences towards buildings that, that can help them meet that. You know, we've done plenty of research that shows there's a pricing differential opening up in the office sector based on buildings that are uh, environmentally you know, rated by the likes of Briam or Lead or newer buildings versus older, uh, versus older buildings. We're seeing stronger rental growth coming through for better quality buildings. So I think the concerns are real um, and they're warranted, but they also should be selectively applied to the sector as well. Can you just give us a quick definition of secondary and tertiary properties, what you what you mean by that? That's actually a more difficult question than it sounds, Adam. Um, there's a, I mean, partly it's in the eye of the beholder. So one man's secondary office could be another person's tertiary office. But broadly, we're talking about kind of commodity type office buildings, those that are older, 
So 10 plus years old, maybe a little older than that. Buildings that don't have environmental ratings from the likes of Briam or Leeds, so they're energy inefficient. They're not well amenitized as well, so they don't necessarily have the amenities in the common spaces that most modern occupiers, especially the kind of occupiers that investors want to attract in their buildings that they desire. But you know, within the industry, there's probably no strict definition. I think you just think about those kind of slightly crummy secondary and tertiary buildings of the type that, you know, appear in sort of TV shows like The Office, you know, whether that's the US or the British version. So that, that can be a shorthand. With that definition, as well as the theme song from The Office now firmly stuck in our heads, let's get back to the state of commercial real estate and the importance of nuance. You know, when it comes to commercial real estate, it's a very diverse set of things that comprise the sector. Um, and it's easy to think about large urban markets where the CBD is perhaps uh, a dominating feature. CBD stands for Central Business District. And that was the voice of our second guest for today. Hi, my name is Rebecca Rocky. I am the Deputy Chief Economist and Global Head of Forecasting at Cushman and Wakefield. It's not to understate the importance of the office sector in certain markets or even the exposure that the office sector has in, in certain markets. But, uh, you know, y- you look at everything from retail to multifamily to budding, fast-growing life sciences sector. Uh, Those are all things that tend to be in and around and part of the urban core in markets of all sizes. And then as you extend a little further out, you start to encounter other kinds of property types that are actually doing quite well. That's everything from data centers to industrial, which don't tend to be right in the heart of cities, although in some cases they do. Um, And really outside of office, we're seeing a lot of resilience in what we call the fundamentals in the real estate industry. And when I say fundamentals for those who aren't necessarily in the industry, what we're referring to are the supply demand uh, conditions in the market underlying the income performance of assets. Um, And so when we look at that backdrop, right, we've got retail, which has actually had very strong demand. Um, We've had two years where we were recording sort of 35 million square feet per year, 2022 in 2021. Last year, we got just under 20 million square feet. Um, That's kind of a little bit better than 2019. So it was actually a very decent level of demand against a backdrop of essentially no new supply. Now, that's overstating it a bit. There is some construction around the country, but Compared to other asset classes, the retail construction pipeline is very, very thin. And this just speaks to low vacancy rate conditions as we see them today persisting into the future. We'll get back to retail a little later in the program. For now, let's keep going with some other sectors. Then I kind of put multifamily and industrial together. And the reason I do that is because they both kind of have this thing in common, which is a supply wave. And what we're seeing in both sectors, as well as despite a pretty elevated level of construction coming to the market, both last year and this year and into the first part of next year, there is resilient demand. I mean, these are sectors that are posting fairly decent levels of absorption. In the case of industrial, it's a bit off the pre-pandemic average, but we're still looking at 
you know, in 2023, something around 225 million square feet of absorption, where a normal year before COVID would have been 275. That's a pretty good year. Um, and that's on the backdrop of good spending kind of pulling back and trade flows softening and manufacturing showing some weakness. And yet we still had that kind of a year. We just have more construction coming to the market than we have demand for now to go around. But that's going to be short-lived given how quickly uh, construction starts uh, are, are falling off. And that's also true of multifamily, where that balance is a little bit starker. So the relative amount of supply coming to the market is a bit more than um, when you look at the industrial sector. And therefore, we've seen vacancy creep up uh, to a greater degree and is now kind of hanging out roughly around the sort of 8.3% mark. But again, that's against a backdrop of absorption that was pretty strong. We had 261,000 units absorbed last year. And if you looked at the five years before the pandemic, we were right around 260,000 units on average. So, you know, you do have this temporary supply demand imbalance that's coming to both of these sectors. But I can't emphasize temporary enough. And as we look to the middle of next year, we think we're going to be seeing vacancy start to compress in these sectors. And I could tell you one thing I know as an economist studying all kinds of real estate is the number one predictor of rent growth is where the vacancy rate is sat and where it's headed. Think about what we all went through in the pandemic. We were stuck at home for a long time. Some people stayed home, <laughs> but that's another issue. Regular listeners will no doubt recognize that voice, the one of our final guest for this episode. Hi, I'm Jim Costello here with MSCI. I take a look at the commercial real estate world and tell stories about performance for clients. But we were stuck at home and we had to spend. And so we would, we had to have daily necessities and we were ordering stuff online like crazy. E-commerce sales as a share of total consumer spending surged. Our clients at Prologis, they did a study and they determined that for every dollar spent online versus in store, it requires three times as much industrial space just to store the flow of goods and storage space for all those goods that are not sitting on store shelves or in the back, back warehouse of a, a Target in a suburban mall. So that, that led to a surge in demand. And it, that, that demand is tapering to some degree, but still there's a move towards more digitization of the economy, more consumer goods flowing through in an online context versus in-store. So there, there still is some growth there. And with that demand, then you have uh, a healthier income story. And even with a rise in interest rates last year that has led to higher mortgage rates and a, a more challenging financing environment for assets, there's enough income growth for the industrial sector to largely offset that. So prices there are on a better path. Developing can be one of the most profitable elements of commercial real estate. The uncertainty around that, though, can also be more extreme. If I start a project and I deliver it in the middle of a recession, uh, I, I might not be able to hold on to it. There are stories like that here in New York of people who got started on office buildings before the financial crisis, before the pandemic. It looked like there was a lot of demand, and then it was delivered into a period of no leasing demand. 
and challenges in financing. And then what do you do with it? But then there are other stories of that developer who gets going and they just hit the timing just right and they bring it to market just when everybody's looking for a lot of space and they knock it out of the park. Because if you're taking undeveloped or low density usage land and putting a lot of money into it and bringing it into the modern economy, you're instantly generating much more rental income on that space than before. And you're creating a lot of value. Outside of my uh, place in Brooklyn, an office tower started in 2018. And in 2020, they were pretty well long in the construction. And then they had to stop because for a while, even those workers couldn't go to the job site. By the end of the year, they had started up construction again, but then they're delivering it into a market where there was not the kind of demand that they saw before. And so the question is, you know, who knows what happens next with that building? Those are the kind of challenges that some sectors don't face. The industrial sector, for instance, you know, if you think about like a big logistics facility out in New Jersey or eastern Pennsylvania, three to six months for a construction timeline, uh, you have uh, a very simple construction pattern of putting down some uh, concrete bed. The tilt-up concrete walls are assembled at a factory, brought to the site, and snapped together. I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but it is a much shorter, easier construction process than one of these large uh, assets that you know, will last uh, more than 100 years. We have a record amount of industrial construction today, which is something that people haven't been paying too much attention to. But even with all that construction, it's not presenting that kind of the, the kind of risk that we've seen with other construction cycles. I mean, like look at the the 1980s. We saw uh, the introduction of the highway systems in the United States. All the suburban areas opened up in the 60s and 70s, and then combine that with some tax policy changes that made construction very favorable. We saw a surge of construction in the suburbs in the 1980s. You had the infrastructure put in, then suddenly. Uh, the money situation made it easy, and we wildly overbuilt the amount of office space that was needed. Part of that was also just information inefficiencies. Uh, this is still an opaque asset class, but back then, <laughs> uh, it was harder to get information than just what was out there. It took a while for the appraisers to catch up to the fact that we have been overbuilding for years, and it took a while for values to start coming down, uh, even though there was a lot of empty space. It took a while for the signal to come through, and then that also took a while to change the behavior of the participants because of all the stickiness in terms of that information flow. In the industrial sector, it's a quicker back and forth because there's a shorter development timeline. And then today also, if there's a little bit of a change in industrial demand, it's flowing through on a weekly basis now with uh, some of the cell phone kind of demand measures that people are putting together. So retail, industrial, and multifamily continue to present potential opportunities. And that brings us back to offices. Or, as Rebecca put it, I'm going to juxtapose all of that, which are, you know, to me, pretty positive stories uh, with what's going on in the office sector, where uh, we are at a record level of vacancy. We're currently in our data of about 90 markets, 5.6 billion square feet. We're looking at a vacancy rate of 19.7%. And when we go back, that's the highest we've ever seen. And 
I think there are a few things to unpack there. One would be we also did have a construction wave in office that peaked at the beginning of 2020, and we're still working through those deliveries coming to the market. Um, so that supply pipeline has roughly halved, uh, but we still have roughly around 65, 70 million square feet that was underway and is still coming to the market over the course of the next 18 to 24 months. And in some markets, it's the dominating force and what's driving vacancy. We also have a situation where we're seeing negative demand, negative net absorption, um, and that has also been record setting. So typically during recessions, we've seen about 100 million square feet of negative absorption relative to inventory. In prior recessions, that's been about 2.2, 2.3% of inventory um, loss in terms of the occupied inventory. Uh, now we're in a world where we're at about 240, 250 million square feet of negative demand, closer to 4.6% of occupied stock that was lost during the course of 2020 to present. Office is nuanced, so I can tell you that impact on the demand side has been very different across different markets. It's different within markets, even within different kinds of assets within markets. And again, at a city level, there are varying degrees of magnitude as to what has happened with respect to the supply side and the impacts there. And that transition is going to result in parts of the market being rendered competitively obsolete. We've estimated that's about 330 million square feet out of the markets that we're tracking. And that's going to accrue as some loss to some investor who held that property. Um, however, when you get outside of top tier office, which has been resilient, that's really where we're still in the heart of that transition. The actual issue is that there is a repricing event underway. And when I say underway, that can sound funny to some of our MSCI clients and other asset classes or, or the clients who are focused on other asset classes. Well, price changes and it's just it's like overnight, right? And wrong. It just, it's a slow moving thing. Commercial property is an opaque asset class. You don't have pricing instantly. It's not like selling a bushel of boy, uh, soybeans in Chicago. It's it's a long process of uh, buyers and sellers kicking the tires, thinking about what they'd be willing to do, thinking about what kind of financing they can find, and that's a moving target as well. The process of selling a building in many markets can be up to 20 weeks, sometimes even longer. Uh, so it's a it's a different kind of asset class. And, and we've seen prices sliding for offices in particular. And that's led to you know, a, a lot of concerns because how much further is this going to go down? And what kind of problems can this create for financial institutions? These are the questions people are struggling with. If, if I'm a fund manager and I've got maybe a 5% uh, exposure to commercial real estate, I see headlines in like the Wall Street Journal or Financial Times talking about problems in the office market. And there's sort of a guilt by association with everything else. Office prices are falling and there are some price declines for other asset classes, but they're nowhere near as severe as what we've seen in the office market. So there's this view that office buildings are commercial real estate or rather that all commercial real estate acts like offices. And that's not the case. So the problems that this uh, decline we're seeing in the office market, uh, the, the, the problems there 
you know, don't necessarily expand to the whole asset class. Another dominant narrative is that the U.S. office market is in much worse shape than Europe. Tom's latest search, however, shows that narrative may be in need of a rewrite. There's definitely a sense in the European real estate market where we look across the pond to the U.S. and we see some of the struggles that are happening in cities like New York and San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, with some of the social problems that are affecting the downtown areas, the fact that businesses are moving out of those areas, and you're seeing very substantial you know, price corrections in somewhere like San Francisco, for example. And Europe looks at those problems and thinks, well, our cities are very different, and they certainly are. Uh, we're sort of more dense in our urban environment. We've got better transport networks. We also tend to live in smaller houses, uh, and so there's, you know, people that have rooms necessarily for big home offices and what have you. So perhaps that's going to push more of them into the into their sort of into their corporate buildings. Uh, so I think there's a sense that the 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 office market here on the occupy side is not as badly affected as we're seeing in the U.S. And I think there is some truth to that, but that's not necessarily being reflected in the capital markets numbers at the moment. So if you look at market liquidity in European offices, it's about as bad as it's ever been. Um, fewer offices traded in Europe than ever before in 2023, and actually the the US market showed a little more resilience than that. So, uh, and we've got some other metrics that seem to show some of these European markets in a a pretty negative light as well. If you look at our price expectations gap, that's a measure of market liquidity that looks to quantify the difference between buyer and sell expectations. That's over minus 40% for German offices and and Amsterdam offices. Um, and that's a higher price gap than we're seeing in cities like New York, for example. So I think there are concerns that, especially investors, those allocating capital and those spending that capital really are voting with their feet and they're moving away from the office sector in quite a significant way. So if you look at the top buyers of office markets over the last five years in Europe, they've hardly bought anything in 2023. And so while the occupier markets might appear to be better set, I think the capital markets still look in a pretty uncertain position. There's definitely an excess of office space out there at the moment. The leasing professionals uh, are showing some record high uh, availabilities for space in, in the office market. Some of that space, though, is facing a different kind of demand. The leasing professionals talk about how certain assets are still getting attention. There are people who need to be around each other in the city. Some office workers, their, their jobs depend on a high degree of social capital, visiting with clients, talking with their colleagues. There's a lot of stuff you can do on Zoom and Teams, but it's not a perfect substitute for sitting down in an office with somebody and looking them in their eyes and getting a sense of what they really think about something. Those, those folks who really depend on that social capital element to their job, they are coming back into the cities. But that's not every job. Some jobs where it's more routine work, more filing and calculating, uh, less of that social capital aspect. I view this, this change of you know, some of the workers staying home. It's To me, in a way, it's nothing new. This is what we've been seeing from the 1950s on in the United States. Back in the 1950s, uh, a fellow I used to work with at MIT, he did a study and he showed that 
roughly half of the financial sector in the United States used to be concentrated, the, the workers were concentrated on the island of Manhattan. And that changed over the years. High-tech tools like fax machines, cheap long-distance phone calling, it allowed the firms to move economic activity out of Manhattan, which is an expensive area, and it moved that activity to places like Charlotte and Tampa. And when they move the economic activity there, that means eventually through attrition, you hire local folks and you can hire them at a lower wage rate. And in the end, it made the average financial sector wage in Manhattan surge because you kept uh, the big swinging wallets, as Michael Lewis kind of might say, uh, here in Manhattan. And so I see this as just a continuation of that kind of uh, thing that has been happening for a long time. One of the things that our clients have been asking us for a lot recently is information about offices in places like Monterey, Mexico, and in the Philippines. Why is that? Because they understand that there's back office activity that's being shifted to those areas that in uh, 30, 40 years earlier was being shifted to places like Charlotte and Tampa. And they're trying to think about an investment strategy around that. If this is the case, that businesses and workers have realized that not all business has to take place in Manhattan, London, or San Francisco, well, what does that mean for commercial real estate in the suburban versus urban areas of the U.S. Again, it's hard to paint with a broad brush, and I'll give you a few examples where the CBD, how we call it, or you know, you can kind of think of that that urban core of, of most cities versus the suburban distinction might start to break down. Um, and you know, I'll kind of give you two examples there. One would be a sort of San Diego, and the other one is a Tampa. Um, in San Diego, it's pretty much always been the case that the CBD had a higher vacancy rate. Um, the suburban market was really where we were seeing a majority of leasing activity. We were seeing um, a lot of positive net absorption there and just structurally lower vacancy rates. Um, and that sort of before COVID, since COVID, it's been the same, right? And then you go to a Tampa and it's a bit of the reverse where you see the CBD is where tenants want to be. Um, that's really where the lifeblood of the office market is. And the suburban market is really struggling. And that was true before COVID. It's definitely even truer now. And so there are differences across markets where I think it's important to, to recognize not every city has the same dynamics. We're, we are seeing some distinctions here around city size and average commute time. This is corroborated in our data, but also ha has been found by researchers who are leading on this, such as Nicholas Bloom, where, you know, the the larger the city and the longer the commute time, the lower the return to office rates have been. Now, they've universally come down from their pandemic peaks. However, in these cities where the cost of commuting is higher, we've certainly seen sort of a, a higher work from home sort of rate that has persisted since since that peak rate has been achieved. And then as you go into secondary markets, you know, the work from home rate is a little bit lower. And then as you go into the most tertiary of markets, kind of think of, you know, I'm sitting in DC. So I think of a place like Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is not too far away. Uh, the return to office rates are actually pretty high in those markets. 
And that's also reflected, by the way, in what we've seen in vacancy. So when we look at the largest urban centers um, around the country, and this is this is kind of putting the CBD and the suburbs all together. We just say, well, what are the largest cities, not just gateways, your Atlanta, your Dallas, and so on. What we've seen is vacancy has gone up anywhere from 700 basis points to 1,000 basis points. And then you juxtapose that with your small tertiary markets where vacancy has gone up in the aggregate by 300, less than even half of what we're seeing in larger cities. But Adam, you may be saying, all of your guests have clearly stated that commercial real estate is not just office space. So can we please hear about something else? What about retail? You know, you mentioned we'd get back to retail. What's the story there? Retail has become one of the less desirable sectors in the market, I think to put it, I think to put it politely. Back at the at the peak of the last property boom, sort of 2007, 8, 9, well, 2007, 8, let's say, retail was accounting for around 25% of all transaction volumes. Um, it's fallen to between sort of 12 and sort of 17%, depending on which year you, you sort of follow, but it's averaging around 15% of the market currently. So as an investment asset class, it's it's seen a, quite a substantial withdrawal of capital. You've also got a big loss of value as well. So retail property prices are almost universally less than they were in 2007. So if you'd bought a, a shopping center in 2007, it would be worth up to 50% or even more less than you originally acquired the asset for. Sort of linking to our conversation about offices, there's a sense that the fate that has befallen the secondary and tertiary parts of the retail market, so lower quality shopping centers, could befall parts of the office market. So retail can be seen as a bit of a, um, a warning sign for what can happen when the market moves on and these buildings become economically sort of unviable. Having said that, there are parts of the market have done that have done pretty well through the COVID period and, and subsequently. So retail warehouse properties, we'd sort of call that big box retail in Europe, sort of out of town retail, um, the type of properties that, that people drive to that sell kind of white goods, or you might get gyms or, or other, you know, um, home goods stores. Um, furniture, et cetera, those buildings, those properties have done pretty well through COVID. And I think that just reflects some of the change in spending patterns. But even in that part of the market, which is relatively well favored, actually capital values have come off quite substantially over the last 12 months, which really corresponds with what's happening in the rest of the market. Um, but on the positive side, there are parts of the retail sector also that, that continue to attract a lot of capitals. So you're seeing some of the long income players buying into some uh, grocery let portfolios, often these assets are index-linked, index-linked rents. There's been quite a lot of US capital, for example, coming into the UK grocery sector. And also, I think the other final point I'd make here probably is that retail has on, undergone, already undergone a significant correction. Um, and so yields are structurally higher than they have been in other sectors. So at a point when properties kind of struggling to remain competitive in a higher rate environment, the fact that Retail yields are already at six, six and a half percent in some cases. I mean, there's still that arbitrage between where the yields are and where the risk-free rate is. So actually, if you look at UK retail, for example, the average yields are about as high as they've ever been. Um, and that gap between the yields and the risk-free rate is coming back to its long-run average as well. So that might pull some capital back into that part of the, back into the sector. Jim? Retail had been 
a dirty word for many investors over the last uh, 10 to 20 years. That growth in e-commerce activity, that clearly took away some element of demand. You're not gonna see a lot of bookstores. You're not gonna see a lot of record stores anymore. Uh, now, there are a few record stories to see, but that's more the niche uh, stuff where it's it's uh, you know kind of bougie. But nonetheless, records are coming back a little bit. I, I will say that I've, I've I've seen it more. But but please, but please go on. <laughs> but anything that's kind of a commodity, where I'm buying it, I know the quality of the good. I know uh, that if I buy it in one store versus in another, uh, I'm getting the same thing. That just lends itself to online shopping, and, and so all those kind of stores have largely gone away. So the income was challenged because of those issues. There was another problem that we faced in the United States, though, on retail, that we were just oversupplied on retail construction. From the 80s to the uh, 2000s, we built so much in the suburbs of the United States that there are just a, a big swath of you know, empty uh, neighborhood, community center uh, kind of facilities that don't have as much of an economic need as in the past. And, and so the other parts of the world, of the developed world, had tighter planning restrictions so you couldn't overbuild as easily. But the challenge with the retail sector is that you're dealing with a couple shocks here. You're dealing with the elimination of older, less competitive space. I mean, it wasn't just the overbuilding that we saw. It was also stuff from like the 60s and 70s in the industrial Midwest where the personal income that supported it locally went away. So, you know, you have that kind of old and junky stuff being torn down. And then you had some overbuilding in, in some of the recent booms. So that that's an issue that has led to, even before the pandemic and all the uh, focus recently on distressed real estate, there was always kind of a, a slow, steady, constant drip of distressed retail properties coming to market. Uh, but that slow, steady drip has taken a lot of that older, less efficient space out of the market. And we're starting to see uh, if we look at just the total uh, leasable area for the retail market relative to the population of the United States, that number is actually finally starting to decline, which means that you don't have the lower quality space dragging down some of the uh, more productive retail assets. But in fact, if we look at from the uh, MSCI U.S. Quarterly Property Index, you know th these are mostly high quality institutional uh, uh, institutionally managed retail assets, but it's back up. It's back up above the levels seen in 2019. So that's that's a healthy story. And if you remove some of the older stuff in the marketplace and there's a little bit of consolidation, you know that can be a healthy thing for income. Doesn't mean the prices are any better, because even if income is a little bit above where it was in 2019, uh, it's now costing an awful lot more to finance an acquisition and you have a more expensive mortgage. And so, yeah, retail property prices are going to be challenged. But it's not as bad as the office market where people are asking, do I need an office tower in this location ever again? Retail did face that existential question 
20, 30 years ago. And the markets responded by slowly filtering some of those properties out to the bottom and having them removed from the market. And when I say removed from the market, I mean they're getting an appointment with a bulldozer and the land is uh, repurposed for some other use. On its face, at least, this view of retail seemed a bit at odds with Rebecca's take on the sector when I spoke with her. So I asked her about it. Yeah, I think that speaks um, a bit to retail as a broader category than some of the references I made earlier, which were specifically to shopping centers. And we're tracking, you know, about 80, 85 U.S. cities that we think are kind of the core cities for um, the retail sector in general. You know, you can definitely go to really small MSAs or micropolitan areas, as they're called, and find that there are still pockets of retail that are adjusting. I also think about other segments of retail outside of shopping centers. So I, my mind immediately goes to malls because whose mind doesn't go to malls? And what we know is that there have been impacts that disproportionately impact that sector, uh, whether it was because of the types of tenants that tended to um, operate in malls or malls that were just in locations where economic transformations have left economies in a fundamentally different position than they were in in maybe the 1970s or 80s when they had built out to serve one kind of economy that has now transformed. So reading between the lines there, I'm talking a bit about um, the deindustrialization of pockets of the country and the movement of jobs from some cities to really other cities as we became more knowledge-based in the kind of work that we do. Um, and that has left what I sort of dub as legacy retail in some of these markets to still be going through a sort of rebirth in some ways, or we're still right-sizing, as maybe maybe Jim called it. Uh, but when we look at retail in the 80, 85 markets that we're tracking, and we're looking at shopping centers, what we're seeing in that front is really a lack of quality space, a lack of well-located, good retail space. And that's why we're sitting at a 40-year low vacancy rate on the retail front. And frankly, I think some of that working through being overbuilt on retail, which has taken place over the course of the last 15 years, um, has contributed to that really tight pipeline I alluded to, which is helping to keep vacancy very low. But we may, in some cities, actually be reaching that point where we're not so overbuilt on retail. And we actually think that there's some runway there, especially for you know open air shopping centers and things like that. It sounds like that word quality Quality, great location too, right? You can't sort of work your way around a great location. So I think even in those cases where not the best quality, but maybe a great location, that property is still very viable, still in demand, still in demand. I've been shocked sometimes when I dig in for different clients into data, looking at Class C shopping centers in, you know, pick your city. And actually, sometimes finding that they're structurally lower vacancy than in Class A. What about in Europe? Is the retail overbuilding story playing out there? It is, but not quite to the same extent. If you looked at the um, the provision of retail property per capita a few years ago, 
the US was far ahead of continental Europe and, and the UK sat somewhere in the middle of the two. There's a website called deadmalls.com where you could go and, and, and see these kind of people strolling around these basically disused shopping centers that were built in the 70s and have been left to go to rack and ruin. We don't have the same issues quite as much here, but there is certainly oversupply in, the, in, in some sectors, not quite as acute as in, as in the US, but there is, there is some oversupply, I think especially lower quality out-of-town shopping centres or edge-of-town shopping centres. And the challenge for those owners is what to do to those buildings to make them economic vi economically viable again. So there's a good example of a property recently that was sold out of a distress situation. Uh, so the bank enforced on the owner um, and the building was sold to a, uh, a sort of a housing developer to be converted into apartments or multifamily. But obviously you can only do that selectively because it's, you know, you need to get planning permission. It's very expensive. So you need to get your entry point right. So that's not a solution for all, you know, all of the, uh, the sort of uh, the poorer quality retail stock, but it's something that we're seeing selectively. We've spent some time on previous episodes with Jim and Will Robson and others talking about how politicians and colonists have have put out the idea that unused retail and office space, well, should simply be converted into housing. And we've also talked about why that's anything but simple. So we're not going to spend much more time on that today. I would invite you to go back and listen to those conversations, which you'll find on the Perspectives page of MSCI.com. For now, however, Jim did bring up one example of how this issue is being addressed, specifically in Calgary, Canada. People talk a lot about converting office buildings to something else. Calgary is actually doing something interesting where they're trying to subsidize that conversion, uh, trying to reduce the cost for the developer to actually make that transition. And they view it as a benefit for the city overall because for them, if suddenly you have some residential in your downtown, instead of it just being an empty place at night, you've got some additional life there. You've got some additional taxpayers. You've got some people who are going to use restaurants and retail nearby. So that that's sort of the carry-on benefit there for you know the vast portions of the office market in the United States. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a challenge to think about how you convert it. And I wonder if maybe you need uh, a little bit more uh, government help to make that happen. Broadening out to a more uh, a macro view and the influence of interest rates, central bank movements specifically, Rebecca, the, the quote, interest rates trump fundamentals came up when we were talking. Give us your take on that. What, what, what does it mean? And how is it playing out right now, if it is? I think the spirit of that was in a world where interest rates were just declining, right, for 40 years up until the pandemic. And then we went back to the zero lower bound. And I still remember seeing a sub 1% 10-year treasury and thinking, like, what is happening? This is crazy. That sort of environment where the cost of capital is you know, in some ways artificially depressed through policy interventions, whether you agree with them or not, that that creates tailwinds for pricing that 
really can be disconnected or or trump the sort of underlying fundamentals. And I think on that front, you know, I think at this point we can agree that pricing did get very extended during COVID. The world of one percent treasuries or one and a half percent ten year treasuries that was not a a world we were going to stay in for for long. And now we're in a world that's very very different than that, and a world where fundamentals are coming back to be of import, especially because you don't necessarily have the tailwinds to ride on the back of, of just interest rates are going to continue to go down. Whether you know, you're know you in the May pivot camp, the June pivot camp, or September, whatever it is, we're, we're sort of mid-year. We think June is probably when they're going to cut. Um, as you can see from futures markets the last few months uh, and even weeks, that can change rapidly. So no matter what happens there, we're we're at a four two four three tenure, you know. And if you look at any measure of interest rate forecast for the tenure moving forward, we're looking at anywhere from three and a half to four percent on the tenure over the medium term. So Fed moves, maybe yeah, the yield curve on inverts. We start to get more conviction in the market. We see more velocity. All of those things we think will be true. But at the end of the day, we also think, as do many others in the broad consensus of uh, economists and investors, you know, you pick your survey, it's kind of a three and a half to four percent 10 year treasury world. And in that world, you just you don't get the same kind of cap rate compression that you used to if spreads sort of normalize on a risk adjusted basis. So CRE is attractive relative to other uh, asset types. We will be in a world where cap rates are higher than they were during the pandemic and even a little bit before the pandemic. And that's just an adjustment that we're still working through. But that comment of interest rates, Trump fundamentals really came from a world where we were in very low interest rate regime that that just created such tailwinds for pricing that fundamentals almost took a back seat in some cases. I do continue to think that there is some downplaying of the positive fundamentals that have persisted across most kinds of real estate. Um, and I think there's also an in a sort of creativeness within the sector that has been forced to reinvent itself as the economy's needs for real estate have evolved over the course of decades. Yes, we're in a world that's different than pre-COVID, but we've been faced with many big changes in the structure of our economy, in global relationships that the U.S. has and the way that you know, we interact with other countries geopolitically through trade and so on. And we figured it out. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Tom, Rebecca and Jim and to all of you for listening. Next up on the program, we look at how artificial intelligence is already affecting the investment industry and what may happen next. Come on, you had to know that one was coming at some point. Until then... I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.